Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. My name is Angela Saylor, and I'm the vice president of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our president, Kay Coles James, welcome to our webinar, Biden Threatens to Undo the Work of Trump, Policies that Create an Economic Boom for Minority-Owned Businesses. It has been said before, American small businesses are the backbone of the American economy. Small businesses are responsible for two-thirds of all new job creation and, em and employ over 60 million Americans. That is why so many small business owners like yourself are asking and wondering if the Biden administration will turn back Trump's specific economic policies that directly led to the economic boom for minority-owned businesses and the lower unemployment rates for Blacks and Hispanics. For the next 45 minutes, you are gonna participate in a dynamic conversation with the Honorable Kevin Hassett, President Trump's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He is going to share the facts about specific policies that created an economic boom for, my, for the minority community. Included in this dynamic discussion will be Raynard Jackson, president and CEO of Raynard Jackson and Associates. Gentlemen, as I introduce you, please join the screen. Kevin Hassett is currently vice president and managing director of the Lindsay Group and a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He previously served as research director at AEI, as a senior economist at the Federal Reserve, and as a faculty member at Columbia University. Hassett was also a senior advisor on Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign, and prior to that, he served as John McCain's chief economic advisor in the 2000 presidential primaries. And yes, an economic advisor to the campaigns of George W. Bush in 2004 and the presidential election and McCain in the presidential election for 2008. Welcome Raynard Jackson, president and CEO of Raynard Jackson and Associates LLC, a government public relations and political consulting firm in Washington. He has a proven record of balancing public policy with fundamental freedoms associated with free markets. He writes a weekly syndicated newspaper column in over 200 newspapers, is a political analyst for TV station WUSA 9, the Washington DC CBS affiliate, and had an award-winning internet radio show, Talking Right with Raynard Jackson. And that show has been recognized for the past two years in Talkers magazines, Frontier 50, and the Frontier 50 is a selection of the top 50 most outstanding talk media webcasters. Gentlemen, welcome. Let's roll up our sleeves and jump into this incredible discussion about getting the facts right. Thanks. It's great to be Thank here. Thank you, Angela. So, Reynard, do you want to kind of jumpstart the conversation for us? I know that people are anxious to really hear the facts. And as I'm looking at Kevin, he's ready to give them. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Angela. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation. And thank you, Kevin, for taking out time to join us. I know you're busy. First question for you is I do a lot of media and I've constantly been bombarded with what specifically did President Obama, or former President Obama do? Did he do anything by way of policy that actually benefited the black community and the small minority business community? You know, I, I, I'm sure if you if you asked uh, Obama administration, former Obama administration official, that they'd have a list of things. And then if we looked at them, uh, then, you know, maybe we would sort of say, yeah, that was something that, you know, had some merit and that was something that didn't. But the bottom line is that uh, the Obama administration, the headline economic thought is that they pursued policies like high marginal tax rates, uh, heavy, heavy regulation that harm the economy. And that's why you might recall that before uh, President Trump took office, that you know, left-wing economists, not the economists at the Heritage, Heritage Institution or Heritage Foundation, uh, but, but they, they basically said uh, that uh, there's a new normal, that the economy is gonna stink forever, uh, that we're, we're, you know, 1% growth is inevitable. And, you know, wage growth has been flat for the entire Obama administration. And that's not his fault. It's the result of, you know, basically exogenous forces or whatever. But the point was just that the policies were so bad, uh, high marginal rates, you know, highest corporate tax on earth and so on, uh, that there was basically very, very little or no wage growth for all Americans. Now, the thing about it is, though, uh, that when you're thinking about the minority community, that uh, there's very strong empirical evidence that basically uh, it looks a little bit like uh, that discrimination in hiring uh, is less visible now, that uh, the, the people who really studied like who gets hired, it looks like the hiring, there's not a lot of evidence of discrimination, but when for layoffs, it's still the case that when they can people control for the ability and seniority and everything else that minorities tend to get laid off sooner. Um, and so there for, for me, you know, there's still still quite a bit of evidence that a weak economy hurts uh, minorities the worst. Uh, and, and in part, I think that might be because of ongoing discrimination. But the bottom line is that so that really, really weak economy um, that uh, President Trump inherited was the result of, you know, at the macro level, really terrible policies. Policies that they tried to explain away with their excuse that it's a new normal uh, and policies that increased income inequality, uh, suppressed wage growth and so on. So is it true or false that President Trump inherited a booming President Obama economy and there's nothing he did in four years that benefited the small and minority business community. It was just a continuation of the, the Obama administration. Is that true or false? Yeah, that, that's that's utterly false. And, and uh, for those of, uh, folks who are participating, you know, you could go to YouTube and uh, and and just you know type in uh, you know Kevin Hassett uh, White House press conference. One of my first times where I actually ran ran the press conference, I had a whole bunch of charts that address that specifically. But but the bottom line is we went from everybody saying there's a new normal and we can't have high growth and that President Trump and his economic team are absolutely crazy because they said we can get 3% growth to when we got 3% growth, everybody's saying that, oh, well, they just you know kept the Obama trends going. 
right? And so, and so when, pe when people are flipping their story like that, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing my mom used to catch me on all the time. <laughs> yeah, you, I shouldn't be able to get away with that. Well, explain to me then why President Trump kept repeating religiously the black unemployment rate, the lowest in history, the Hispanic law, uh, unemployment rate, the job participation rate for minorities have just plummeted since uh, we've been keeping record. So reconcile that to because what I'm hearing from the liberals is that President Trump did nothing, but yet the indicators uh, indicate that something happened to lower the unemployment and job participation rates. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the, the first thing I could say is that uh, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week that went through a lot of evidence. Um, and what one way that you can do this is that you can um, look at what the Congressional Budget Office said would have happened uh, in the next few years and then compare it to what actually happened. And in the Wall Street Journal article, what I did is because the really first big policy other than deregulation that President Trump's team uh, uh, successfully enacted was the tax cuts. And I looked at what the Congressional Budget Office said would happen to the economy uh, in the next few years. Uh, and then I uh, compared it to what, what actually happened. And you could argue that, that the difference between what actually happened and what the professional forecasters thought would happen before they knew about the policy is a measure of the effect of the policy, right? And, and so uh, two years after the tax cuts passed, already uh, GDP was $300 billion a year higher than the CBO forecasted right before the tax cuts passed. Uh, about yeah, you know, two and a half million more people uh, had jobs than the CBO thought was possible right before the tax cuts were passed. Uh, capital spending was about $100 billion a year higher uh, than um, uh, the CBO thought would be possible before the tax cuts were passed. Uh, and you might recall, uh, that the President Trump and you, Reynard, think a lot alike. You know, that that I went in one time. I, it's always the kind of conversation you and I have on the phone all the time, right? Where, where the president's like, "Well, you know, so so what have you guys been doing, you know, to, to uh, help people understand the benefits of the tax cuts?" And I had this like presentation about the effect of the tax cuts on GDP. And the president looked at me like really frustrated, and he's like, "People don't care about GDP. <laughs> you care about GDP, fine." You know that might make you vote for it, but your vote isn't isn't enough. Uh, and, and he so he made me really focus on what it would do for ordinary families uh, and, and translate it into family incomes. And and when we did that, then you know our estimates suggested. I told the president this. I remember this conversation really significantly. I said that it'll add four to four thousand to nine thousand dollars a year to the income of the average family if we pass these tax cuts. And then President Trump said, that's it. So 4,000, you know, that's, that's a family income. That's the kind of thing that, that I want to talk. I'm, you know, that, that's my voice. I can hear myself talking about that. I'm not talking about GDP, he said. And said, and I'm also going to take the lower number, he said, because I don't want to overpromise. You know, I'm, I'm not pie in the sky guy. So let's give him the conservative number. You said it's 4,000 to 9,000. Let's say that we're going to do 4,000. You might recall uh, that when we, when we did that, the amount of heat that we took, you had everybody said it was it was crazy. You know, one Harvard professor uh, who shall not be named uh, said that I'm uh, paraphrasing that I'm either stupid or a liar or both um, because of that number. And 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 uh, 
But, you know, as I put in the journal article last week, if you look at what happened in the two years after the tax cuts, uh, then uh, the median uh, income uh, for the median family went up just in those first two years uh, by $4,900. And so just like, and it was like 6,000 something uh, over the entire Trump uh, term. And, and so, so the point is just that uh, at the aggregate level for everybody, those policies really worked. But uh, because we got the economy so hot, that had a really, really big positive disproportionate effect on minority communities. And um, I can tell you that every, I brief the president on economic data all the time. Um, you know, it's a, it's a little thing that, that Washington insiders know, but the CEA chair, the job I had, gets the economic data the day before. Uh, and and the, the, then, then the CEA chair shares the data with the Fed chair uh, and the treasury secretary and the president. And so we didn't, you know, a lot of times, so like if I go in there and there's like a purchasing manager's index number that's interesting or whatever, then I, I want to talk to the president, then, you know, General Kelly would tell me take a hike, right? Like, but if there's like an important number, you know, that you would get in there and you would talk to him and he always, always wanted to know uh, what was going on, um, you know, basically for different income groups, uh, for supervisors and non-supervisors and for people by race. And I don't think I ever saw him as pleased as he was for economic data as he was when we presented the the data on what was going on in the black community uh, when the hot the hot economy that our policies created started to have really really big effects. And and I even I I know that this is a conversation, but you know when you have a conversation with a nerd, you know you get what you pay for. And and and, and I brought a couple of slides, and there's more slides that we're going to talk about. But but if we could just go to like the I had two slides on just sort of some economic facts about how the Trump economy uh, influenced um, uh, black uh, uh, workers. And, and so 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 yeah, I've got just two slides, but just to put it in perspective. The unemployment rate for black Americans uh, hit 5.2% in August 2019, which is the lowest it ever was in history, okay? Lowest in history. Uh, the following month, the unemployment rate for female black Americans achieved a record low of 4.3%. Uh, the black American labor force participation rate hit its highest uh, post-recession rate in December. Kevin, can you explain to people what the job participation rate means vis-a-vis oh, the unemployment rate? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the problems, that, and this is a problem that's especially the devil's people who are trying to monitor uh, the welfare of people of the black community, is that um, that in the when they have like the unemployment rate, uh, then they count you as unemployed if you're yeah, in the labor force uh, and and don't have a job. And being in the labor force means you're looking for a job. But you know, I, I think that anybody who's ever you know, had a job interview that you really liked and then not gotten the job. And like, you, you, if you apply for a job and you don't get one a few times, it's very easy to get frustrated and, and to give up hope and to stop looking for a job. And, and, and so uh, the unemployment rate uh, doesn't count people who are out of the labor force, which means that they're unemployed, but they, they're so discouraged that, that they've stopped looking for a job. And, and historically, those folks have, you know, and again, because of a legacy of discrimination and everything else that we could talk about, historically, those discouraged workers has disproportionately been minorities. And, and so one of the things you want to see is like, if you really have 
a booming inclusive economy, uh, then not only do you want the unemployment rate to be low, but if the unemployment rate's low, but you still have a whole bunch of discouraged people who aren't looking for a job, mm -hmm. then you're not really helping the disadvantaged the way you would want to, right? So, so you want to see people getting jobs, and you want to see people coming back into the labor force because their, you know, their friends got jobs, so they heard, hey, it's it's a good time for me to get back in there. And so the participation rate just means that that to get to get the participation rate to its highest ever that that means that you got a whole bunch of people that were discouraged and frustrated uh, and had given up hope and you got them to come back into the labor force. And so that's so what- So that means they're optimistic about the future. Yeah, that and, and optimistic about their own chance of getting a job. And then, you know, real median household income achieved a record high in 2019, increasing $4,000 in just three years. Uh, and, uh, and, and basically, oh, over the entire Obama administration, median household income for black Americans declined over those four, you know, 14 years going back to 2002, actually declined by $76. And so that so that you took a, a world where basically they're treading water at best and turned it into a world where things are really booming and things are really getting better. Uh, and can we see the next slide, please? I mean, this is these these, and I could tell you that that I can remember, uh, you know, talking in the Oval Office about these facts uh, with the president, and just just like the joy that it gave him, and and you could see that too when he went out on the stump, and 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 he would mention these facts all the time, um, and we had to update them. Gosh, you know, we we had people whose full time job it was to update these things because he cared so much about them. But the poverty rate for Black Americans fell to the lowest rate on record in 2019. Um, and about a million black Americans were lifted out of poverty uh, during the uh, first three years of the Trump administration. And um, the other thing was that that you could just sort of say, oh, well, you know, he just lucked into a, uh, a booming economy. Uh, and, and so, you know, the black Americans, you know, were, were not keeping up for, or might not have been keeping up with everybody else. But if you see like the next bullet point, that the weekly earnings, the typical median usual weekly earnings uh, for uh, black workers went up 4.1% uh, per year over that time, which was higher than it was for, for, for white uh, workers. And, and so that, uh, you know, absolutely the, the economy disproportionately benefit, benefited black Americans during those years. And then the final thing is that home ownership rate skyrocketed too, because uh, since folks had money then they had and they had steady jobs then you know they they could afford down payments and they could convince banks to make loans to them uh and in order uh for them to get a house and so on and, and, and so it really was a revolutionary time i think we can stop sharing the slides now uh, a revolutionary time um for the country in terms of changing what we think about what's possible with an economy but also we showed that you know if you've if you have like high tax, high regulation policies, that's going to hurt businesses, and that and, and then and that's going to cost jobs. And that when that happens, that harm, you know, disproportionately hits uh, minorities. Uh, and then, and if you do the opposite, if you reverse it, you disproportionately benefit minorities. And so, so the concern would be now um, that you know President Biden's proposals will reverse will reverse this stuff. And I think if he does that, then it'll be just a crying shame. So, so Kevin, you know, as as we're looking at the stats, and 
um, as, as Reynard is really trying to pull out the accomplishments of, under the Trump administration. And we talked about Obama and now we're kind of booked in here with um, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. And we also have this, this interesting dynamic of COVID and, and trying to do a recovery here. Can you talk a little bit about what small businesses should be doing now, what they should be listening for as the new administration is putting forth their, their policy recommendations and, and why it's critical at this moment um, to be on our toes about what's next and how, how small businesses can, and can really impact the direction of where the economy goes for, for the country. Right, you know, and, and it's a really important question you ask, Angela. And and uh, you know, the thing I can say about it that's the first the first thing, in terms of sort of legacy things about um, you know how our country's evolved over time, is that um, there are a heck of a lot of small businesses that are minority owned. Uh, about a, a, a little less than a third of small businesses are minority owned. Uh, they employ seven million people. Uh, account for about a trillion dollars a year of GDP. Uh, and, and if you look at the data, uh, is there something interesting too, which is that, that probably, okay, so, so, so now I'd have to fact check this to say it. So I'm just putting, putting a, a caution ahead of this. But, but the last time I looked carefully at the numbers, you could make the case that the most entrepreneurial uh, demographic group in, in the United States was, is uh, black females. Um, that there, there are just enormous number of small business, small businesses that are run by black females, and 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 so when you do something that helps small business, then you're going to disproportionately benefit um, that community. And and I have basically, we've talked about sort of legacy problems, which we no one can deny in this country. But but one of my theories is that uh, that discouraged folks. Uh, who apply for a job and then they don't get it, and then they apply for a job and they don't get it. Uh, discouraged folks with spunk start a business. It's like, well, you know, the heck with that. I'm going to start a business. If they're not going to hire me, I'm going to hire me. Uh, and and you know, because there is a, a puzzle almost. You can sort of explain why there, why so many folks, especially in the past, were starting small businesses. And so, so what uh, President Trump's policies did was basically they. Uh, deregulated uh, and by lowering marginal tax rates made it so that small businesses could keep more of their money and use it uh, to create jobs. And and when we looked at this, this was one of the, I would say, you know, top five puzzles for me uh, or, or things that I got wrong. Uh, and, and, and when I get stuff wrong, I'm puzzled. My wife is never puzzled when I'm wrong, but <laughs> of course he's wrong, it's Kevin. But, uh, but, I, but I was puzzled. And, and, and what happened was that we started this, remember President Trump had a rule that you had to get rid of two regulations if you're going to introduce one, but then we outperformed that by about, gosh, almost 10, almost no new regulations were introduced. And, and But I thought that the regulation effect would, would be really positive, but that it would take like 10 years to be visible because like regulations are kind of this complicated thing. But it turned out that when we sort of stopped the new regulations, it had a massive positive effect on small businesses and on minority-owned small businesses. Is there anything uh, specific that you can think of, Kevin, that, that benefited the small minority community as far as deregulation? Yeah, so what I was gonna, uh, the, the big thought, I was just, just about to get there. The big thought is this, that, uh, so when I, when I talked uh, to uh, to basically 
friends uh, who run businesses uh, or, uh, you know, basically uh, the uh, small business associations here in town. Um, I learned something that, that as an economist, uh, you know, since I don't have any real world experience, it was obviously that I would miss. Probably Radard would have known this already. But, but, but the real problem is like, so there's all these regulations out there, right? And, and if you're a business that's operating like you operated last year, then you operated last year because you had sort of figured out how to deal with those things, right? Like, so you could, you got to do this, you got to do that, and you do those things, and then the regulators leave you alone, and then you can, you know, run your business. Uh, if we introduce a new regulation, then you're like, ah, crap, I got to figure out how this new regulation affects what I do. And you got to hire lawyers, and you got to hire engineers, and you got to get like people to sort of, and you as a business manager, instead of thinking about how am I going to, you know, maximize my business, you're thinking about how am I going to deal with this regulation? Uh, and and so on, in the Obama administration, those new regulations, they, they grew at the highest rate we've ever seen for a president, uh, about 9% a year, believe it or not, economically significant regulations went up. And so what that meant was, and, and this is the thing that surprised me, that once we stopped doing that, then small business sentiment and small business activity and small business hiring and everything went through the roof right away. And, and then and when, when we dug into it, uh, and, and American Action Forum, Doug Holtz-Seekins, really excellent group across town, I guess they're quasi a competitor for you guys at Heritage, but you know they, they did an estimate that already by the summer of halfway through President Trump's first year, that small businesses had spent 5 million fewer man hours uh, complying with new regulations. And instead, those 5 million hours were spent, you know, making cupcakes or whatever it is the small businesses were doing. Uh, and, and I think that that's like really the, the big thing, the big thing that happened um, for small business. Yeah. Well, I, I, love, oh. I love the way you frame that, because oftentimes we talk about limited government in kind of a broad, in broad speaking terms. But when you talk about limited government in relationship to like regulation, it starts to make practical sense and why you wanna push the government mm -hmm. back away from your day-to-day -day dealings. Um, so I, I really appreciate the way you broke that down. And it Thank seems you. like we should say to folks that your hair should get a little on fire when you start hearing the R word, the regulation word. And that's something people should be listening out for as this administration is putting forth policy. Raynard, I didn't want to cut you off. It looked like no, you- No problem. Let me, you said something interesting earlier, Kevin, that about the, the black job participation rate and the minority job participation rate. People, when that number goes up, that means people are optimistic about the future, about the economy. But then at the same time, how do you reconcile that optimism but yet, if you listen to the, the 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 liberal narrative, President Trump was so polarizing, especially within the minority community. So why would you be optimistic about the Trump policies at the same time he's supposed to be so polarizing? Or is there a way to reconcile those? Yeah, you know, uh, just being an economist that I could say that uh, if I'm looking at the economic data and thinking about the things that we care about um and then that stuff was heading north uh in a big way in a way that was unexpected by all the forecasters uh and you know but politics is a lot 
about a lot more than just economics. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, the police violence and all, all of the stresses that, you know, all of our communities have dealt with over the last few years had a big political impact. And uh, whether President Trump dealt with them in the optimal way or not is something political scientists will probably talk about for a long time, but probably a whole bunch of them will, will say he didn't. Um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know politics, I know economics. And all I can say is that that one of my, you know, when when I when I teach college classes or give a lecture at a university, uh, one one of my favorite little tricks to do, uh, and I did this. I, I taught a class at Georgetown uh, last semester, and 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 it it kind of always works, and it's really quite fun. Um, is that you just get the students to be involved in a conversation. You know, what does a just society look like? You know, that that if society got a little bit better you know, in the way that you care about what would have happened you know like like things you can measure yeah how you know and, and, and then you know pretty much everybody's always like well i want people at the bottom i want poverty to be going down i want inequality to be going down i want you know climate i, I want car carbon emissions going down and if you talk to college students for sure that that, that definitely is going to be one of the top five that they mentioned but the issue is just that once you list all those five things, you can then, I don't know if you ever saw Warner Wolf, if you, I used to live in New York, who did the yeah. best, he did the best sort of like highlights, sports highlights at the end of his uh, sports segment. Uh, let's go to the videotape, right? And, 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 so, and so if you go to the videotape and then list the things that, so if you're you know, a person who believes in, in social justice, then you want, and you want declining income inequality, well then, you know, President Trump's your man. The the the, the uh, Gini coefficient, which is a thing geek economists use to measure inequality, actually improved, uh, you know, in, in a remarkable way uh, under the Trump, you know, especially after the Trump tax cuts. Uh, and you know, wages grew fastest at the bottom. Uh, the strong labor market benefited minority, you know, historically disadvantaged minority communities the most. Uh, and and, and so, so that when we do that when I when I play that trick and then, and then go through it with the with the students, it it, it kind of whacks them over the head. It's like wow, that's not what I expected at all. And so I think that what that means too is that people like me, um, you know, haven't done a good job of breaking through with the facts. Uh, and, and maybe the, a lot of the and maybe it's because voters care a lot about other things that economists don't do. Right. But if you really just could get through, I, I really do feel like the fact that the facts are so surprising to people uh, is, is in some sense a metric of failure of guys like me. Well, I want to just say to all of our participants, um, we want you in this conversation. And if you've got a question, please go to the question box and send it in to us so that we can uh, ask Kevin to address it head on. Uh, Kevin, as as we talk more comprehensively about small businesses, the economy across the across the board in 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 our very special uh, country, America, we've got some other aspects that play into it. You know, education, um, uh, looking at the development of the workforce, and President Trump did some other things in in those areas um, that I think you would love to talk about in terms of how that impacts small business, how that impacts a healthy society and for and impacts our ability to be globally competitive. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, there was uh, so, so much action in this space. 
that uh, you know one of the things that we did is is we put together this big uh, uh, jobs commission. It had uh, some kind of name, which again, it's one of those things that math guys like me do all the time. Is we forget the exact name of the thing, but there was this task force for uh, the worker. American, something like the task force for the American worker. Uh, and they got um, companies all around the country to commit to uh, create uh, apprenticeships. Uh, and, um, you know, I can remember being shocked that within sort of six months, like, although I learned how effective Ivanka Trump is, and so I shouldn't have been shocked, but, but within a few months, there were 3 million people in apprenticeships uh, that wouldn't have had them if they hadn't start, started this program. And sort of, sort of helping um, connect uh, people to jobs was something that was a real focus of ours and a real focus of the president's. And, and it was actually one of the, my first uh, Twitter experience with President Trump was this, uh, that, that I went in because the labor market was getting pretty tight, uh, but the unemployment rate wasn't falling maybe as fast as he wanted, you know, because he always wanted better data than we had, no matter how good it was. And, and um, one of the, so he's sort of like, well, geez, if there's all these job openings, uh, then, then why isn't the unemployment rate dropping faster? And then, you know, I had this presentation for him, which I gave him in the Oval, sitting right across the Resolute desk, uh, where I showed that basically um, there were places, and I can remember the place at the time that was the tightest was Colorado, for some reason. And in Colorado, there was like more than one job opening per unemployed worker. Uh, right. But then there are some other places uh, that um, I, I think Mississippi was one uh, uh, where, you know, that there was sort of like one job opening for four unemployed workers. And so one of the things we, we said to him was that, well, you know, there's kind of like a mismatch, a geographic mismatch between where the jobs are and where the unemployed people are. And, and 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 so and then he the president became sort of obsessed with the and you know because there's other reasons why there's mismatches like skills and things like that and so we ended up having a very broad agenda based on the basic idea of let's try to fix the mismatch uh, but right when I left the Oval I got back to my office and but like by the time I got to my office which is like about a one minute walk from the Oval uh, that he had tweeted you know hey uh, if you're having uh, trouble finding a job you should move. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness well look we but, we, we, have a lot of, we did, did have a lot of policies involved in job training um again supporting uh education historically black colleges and so on and also um helping uh uh basically uh prisoners get back into society and get back and, and but but not be recidivists but be trained so that they can come out and have a job uh, you know, it was a very active, uh, focused effort by the White House to address those disadvantaged communities. Well, we do. We have a question from Ms. Donovan from um, David Harris Jr. Media, and she's she's asking if you could please um, discuss in in your in your opinion and looking at um, the the achievements of the administration, President Trump's biggest economic benefit. Uh, that that people have overlooked. Well, I think the biggest benefit part uh, is that that what I can jump right to, which is just that uh, that the average or median American family uh, over his four years, even with the pandemic, um, saw their income go up by a little less than seven thousand dollars, and that that was 
uh, a striking, striking accomplishment given that they had basically been flat for more than the previous decade. And so I don't know if that's really other, underappreciated, uh, but I think that that was that was probably like the the biggest the biggest thing that that, that I can think of. Uh, that within the deregulatory front, you know, he he established something which I think will at least be a model should be a model for all administrations, but will be a model for uh, conservative administrations from now on. Which he did something that nobody Ronald Reagan you know nobody had ever thought to do before, uh, which is he gave every cabinet agency a regulatory budget. You know, just because he's a pragmatic businessman, he's like, well, so so the regulatory budget basically meant was that that if you're going to add a regulation, then you have to subtract one. You know, and, and, and if you got a regulation that's going to cost a little bit more, then you got to cut a regulation that covers the cost of that thing. And so he gave everybody a regulatory budget. He made them actually show what how their budget worked. And, and making people budget, uh, Angela's shaking her head as, as a person who's a, a very skilled manager. She knows, like, you give people budgets, then hold them accountable, uh, then you, you get results. Uh, and I think an underappreciated thing is how much was accomplished by deregulation. Uh, Casey Mulligan led a team for me at CEA that estimated how much we had saved uh, Americans in, in money. Because if, if a business spends less money on regulation, then they can sell you the product for cheaper, right? Uh, and and uh, we estimated that the typical American, and this is over and above the 7,000 bucks, saved about $3,500 a year um, in the sense that they paid less for the stuff they consumed because the regulatory costs had dropped so much. And they did that because the president did what Angela does when she manages things, she, she gives people a budget. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. oh, I was going to say, Reynard, back over to you with, um, I know you had a few more questions about HBCUs and, and the First Step Act. And I just, again, want to remind people to keep your questions coming. Uh, we want to make sure we get them all addressed. So back to you, Reynard. Yes. What, how did the President Trump's economic policy affect the ability of more students, especially at HBCUs, to not only get engaged in the education process, and what did he do to specifically help the HBCUs who are under a lot of financial distress navigate that that tough road there? Okay, yeah. So the first thing he did, and this is what the first thing he did, is he moved the the uh, federal historically black colleges and universities initiative back to the White House, so that it was the White House that was basically you know making sure that things. Uh, were happening. Yeah, he didn't want any red tape uh, getting, you know, between him and success on this issue. Uh, he signed into law something called the Future Act, which uh, made permanent $255 million in annual funding uh, for HBCUs uh, and uh, also expanded Pell Grants. Uh, signed legislation that included uh, $100 million for scholarships uh, to HBCUs. Uh, and forgave $322 million in disaster loans uh, uh, to HBCUs. So, so I, I mean, there there were very, very big, important, um, uh, you know, and, 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 and the other thing about HBCUs, which have served such an important and still do uh, role in our society, is that um, they don't have necessarily the endowment that Harvard has, right? And so if you forgive $322 million in disaster loans to Harvard, it's not going to have any effect on Harvard. 
but 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 these you know i think that these uh, policies were essential really for the continued success of those essential institutions right one other question liberals tend to say that well president trump's tax cuts were a tax cut for the wealthy is that true number one then number two the three trillion dollars that president trump expropriated back to the u.s by lowering the tax rate because the money was parked by all the major corporations overseas because of the tax rate what did that do to the economy and did it trickle down to the small and minority business community yeah sure uh yeah so so uh the the thing about the tax code that we had uh, when we took over and maybe the one that we'll have again if president biden is successful in reversing us is that um is is it was just the the stupidest uh, tax code ever um that that i i what one of <laughs> i didn't quite cause an international controversy but but i probably got a little bit overboard at one point i was at an event with the prime minister of ireland uh and we were talking about the u.s tax reform in a q a uh and then then i said with the prime minister of ireland there um that that you know the one theory that you know, has not been disproven to me is that the uh, U.S. corporate tax code was written by somebody on acid. <laughs> I was making a joke, I know, but I probably shouldn't have done it. You know, because it got a little more attention than it should have. But, 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 but here's here's an example of what the code would allow to happen. So let's say, uh, Reynard, that you and I had a business. I don't know. We make baseballs or something. We've been making them forever, uh, and we had made lots of money. Uh, and then, you know, prior to the Trump tax reform. Uh, then uh, it's supposed to be done that in the U.S. forever and ever. Uh, and and we, let's say we're selling baseballs for 10 bucks a piece. Uh, then somebody comes to us and say, hey, you should put your baseball factory in Ireland. Because if you put your baseball factory in Ireland, uh, then you'll pay the Irish tax, which is almost nothing. We had the highest corporate tax on earth in Ireland. There's almost no tax. Uh, and sure, you would pay the U.S. tax if you mailed the money home, but just leave the money overseas. You'll never pay the U.S. tax, right? Uh, and so then what we do is we set up the factory in Ireland. I want to run through the math of it. It's very simple math, uh, but it, make, it shows how ridiculous this is, how the acid thing is actually an accurate state. Uh, the, the, so so we, we set up the factory in Ireland. And then all we have to do is have our Irish subsidiary sell to us, the parents, you know, Reynard and Kevin's baseball company, uh, sell us baseballs to sell in the U.S. for $11. So they sell it to us for $11. So the parent pays the sub $11. We sell the baseball for $10 in the US. And so and so in, in the US, we have a $1 loss. And then there's a massive profit in Ireland, right? But in Ireland, there's no tax on the profit. Well, that $1 loss, those things, those pile up. Under the US code, we can carry losses back and get refunded taxes that we paid in the past. Right. And, and, and so and so so what basically happens is we get a tax refund that finances the construction of our plant in Ireland. It's like the stupidest thing ever. Uh, and everybody was doing it. And, and, and you know, the U.S. revenue was cratering and all the jobs are being created overseas. And that happened to the to the tune of basically, as you said, that there were trillions and trillions of dollars locked overseas because people had avoided U.S. tax with this trick. Which didn't so so imagine again you and I um, are you, when we play that trick, uh, then you know the U.S. government doesn't get any tax revenue out of us anymore. In fact, they're giving us a refund on past revenue, um, and and so the really high corporate tax in the U.S. doesn't really hurt us 
because we just don't pay it. We're we're just we moved our we're, we moved to Ireland, so it's like almost irrelevant to us as the rich capitalists that own the baseball company. But who does it hurt? It hurts the worker who used to make the baseballs in the U.S. Right. So that guy who's got all those skills for stitching them up or whatever that 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 guy's job is gone. Uh, and, and and so and so who does who does that corporate tax hurt? Well, it doesn't hurt us. It hurts the worker. And so let's say we reverse it. Who does it help? Well, it's not going to actually help us that much because we had sort of we were avoiding it already. Uh, but it's going to help the workers in the U.S. because there's no longer going to be a reason to move their jobs overseas. It's, and that's what we saw happen. And so all that money did come back, and it had a really big positive effect on the economy. Well, Kevin, we've got a couple of more questions in the queue, and we're we're running up on our time. We're starting to run up, so I want to make sure we get to them. And Reynard, I want you to jump in on this part of the discussion too, as we start to talk about plans leaving out of this webinar in terms of doing some roundtables with small business owners and really digging in and hearing their thoughts and talking about the policies that need to continue to be pushed forward um, to, to ensure that they are vibrant and, and profitable and adding to um, um, our success as a nation to be competitive. So Kevin, one person is just asking a real down home question here. How can we just do a better job of conveying these results um, to, to communities of color uh, and, and, uh, and, and to talk about the tangible results? Uh, and I think this is a, a question we keep asking ourselves uh, as a movement. How do we do a better job of, of communicating um, all the good news here? You know, I think honestly, I, I the the world's leading expert on that, other than you, Angela, is Reinhardt. <laughs> that's what he's been devoted his life to. And um, I, I think that that uh, you know, as an economist, in the end, all I can do is sort of carefully construct like the facts and make sure that they're accurate and so on. Um, but but you know, I, I it, it might surprise you to learn that that most economists aren't very good at communicating. <laughs> I've got a little guess that's that, probably been my experience. <laughs> but I do so think Raynard, that, take 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 that one I'll, on. Um, I'll give you all and, the ammo you can. <laughs> yeah, and 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 also let's talk about the benefit and power of having the information and knowledge, and what that can do to change your life. Yeah. Well, I think, Andrew, definitely you and I and Heritage Foundation continuing to do things like this, that addresses your concern about getting the message out there, because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners in the audience who probably have never heard these types of statistics thrown around that prove that President Trump actually did do specific policy prescriptions that turned the economy hot, especially towards the small and minority business communities. And so I think as a follow-up to what we're doing today, Angela, you said these roundtables, if the audience has any specific subject matter that they want to dig deeper into, anything that Kevin has talked about, maybe we can take suggestions from the audience through email and they can communicate our, their thoughts with us and then we can build roundtables around where there's an interest from the audience and, and use that as the next step because we don't want this just to be a one and done. We want to continue this dialogue with the, the community out there and continue to promote what Heritage is doing by way of some of their research uh, on these issues. Well, you know, it's it's so interesting. Right now, today, we've got a group of people gathered 
um, in, in Philadelphia talking about um, economic issues and, and talking about education um, and how uh, more of, of our organizations can come together and collaborate uh, to, to really push more policies um, that will be extremely beneficial to, to the small business community and to the nation as a whole. And how we do a better job of, of bolstering small businesses in our conversation and our messaging as assets um, to, to America uh, and, and really pushing forth those stories and trying to build and strengthen those relationships. And what we know for sure, Reynard and Kevin, is that it, it's gonna require partnership and a long-term commitment, uh, and that's what we're doing. And we know that it's a two-way um, activity in terms of listening and, 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 and sharing of information back and forth over models that work. And so, Reynard, as we're looking at these roundtables, we gotta know um, from the perspective of the small business owner exactly how these policies really impacted their business from, a, from, from their viewpoint on a personal level as we sure. talk about it kind of more from a national standpoint. And, and I think that that helps to galvanize the support and gets people listening for the R word, regulation of understanding how that's gonna become detrimental. And, and for our young people, I mean, we are gonna continue to do training programs and internships and, and, and looking and reaching into communities that, that we haven't engaged as much in the past to make sure that people are informed and aware of those opportunities and initiatives. Um, and so, you know, Kevin, to you, I, I wanna thank you so much for your time. Uh, you are an economist, but you were very, very um, thoughtful in your presentation and very clear uh, in, in terms of your communication to help break down some of these concepts for us. And, and, and I think people have appreciated it. And Reynard, to you, I wanna thank you for the partnership and for our listening audience. Again, we will be in touch with you about our upcoming roundtables. Uh, they will be smaller. They will allow for us to be able to see your face and engage with you virtually to really have a, a strong engagement about these also important issues. And we look forward um, to, again, continuing to have these discussions. And a part of this discussion, I think, Reynard, is, as you were advocating for, was to have a little bit of a tough conversation that people kind of push under the carpet and get it out there in, in, in the public square and have an honest conversation about it. So thank you for your vision there. And on behalf of our president, Keiko's James and the Heritage family, thank you for tuning in. And we look forward to continuing to build a long and healthy relationship with you. Thanks. Thank you.